This episode was recorded on Wajak Nungabuja. Hi, I'm Beth, and you're listening to Elements. This season, we're talking all about fire, and this is episode three. You can find the first two episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or jump straight in here. Over the years, the task of keeping our urban environments safe from the destructive powers of fire has led to a fair bit of creativity and innovation. At first glance, safety standards and regulations might seem boring and restrictive, but the pressure of designing for difficult situations can lead to inventions that impact us on a daily basis. Take the space race, for example. When the United States and Soviet Union were racing to the moon, everything from rocket exteriors to pens had to be built to withstand the unique conditions of space travel, such as extreme temperatures and microgravity. And this unique extraterrestrial challenge had a ripple effect on our everyday life. Memory foam, phone cameras and ear thermometers are just some of the many examples of inventions that began life in the space programme. This week's producer, Lawrence Drown, gets an insight into innovations that are changing the way we fight fires. He hears about what makes Perth a world leader in firefighting tech and how fire safety contributed to the design of some of our iconic architecture. Now, at the sound of the whoop-whoop, please calmly make your way to the emergency exit and we'll go join Lawrence in the field. What you're hearing is the organised chaos of the City of Vincent Fire Department being called out to an alarm in Rain Square. Advancements in modern technology gives these firefighters the best chance of keeping the city and themselves safe from danger. My name is Lawrence Drown and I'm touring the Department of Fire and Emergency Services, DFES, City of Vincent Fire Station with Station Chief Mark Otto, who's served 35 years in the field. As the alarms are ringing and the firefighting brigade organise themselves swiftly, Mark brings me up to speed as they get called out to the scene. We're standing in the fire station duty room where we have a connection to our communication centre and we have a, a data terminal so that we, we get a map that's put up where the fire is and what we're responding to. We also have a, a printout of the map so that we can take that with us for immediate navigation to the job. And we've also got a map on the wall of our fire district where we may want to check where we're being sent to and guys can quickly plan their route. The duty room is the informational hub of the station with a central console looking like a dashboard in a cockpit of flashing buttons and telephones. TV screens with specific district maps surrounding Perth give direct information with flashing lights indicating fire intensity levels. Mark says it's not uncommon to see the screens concerningly lit in red for numerous extreme fires come the dangerous summer months. When a call comes in, the team plan their route, avoid traffic and choose their best point of access. They'll also determine what specific personal protective clothing and equipment, PPC and PPE, they'll be needing before quickly moving into the tunic room to get changed. The state-of-the-art station opened recently in 2018 
It is well decorated with a healthy $51,000 artwork budget. Stunning city skyline landscapes adorn the walls of the recreational room, keeping the crew relatively comfortable before a call-out takes them up a gear. We take a mere step away from the duty room and an automatic door sweeps open, inviting us into the tunic room. The tunic room is stacked full of each fiery's individual PPC specific for emergency types, where industrial, chemical and bushfires all require certain helmets, boots and tunics. When I first joined, we had one helmet, very lightweight, that was used for everything, structural firefighting, bush firefighting. We were given one woolen tunic and no over trousers. So we were in one, one woolen tunic, same for every fire, structural firefighting, bush firefighting, didn't matter. And, and one set of boots for everything. Given access to some of their original garments, this was seriously rudimentary stuff for such dangerous situations. PPC and PPE is the immediate and last line of defence for firefighting crews on the ground, at times the literal only barrier between these courageous emergency workers and raging fires often reaching up to 1,100 degrees. Fortunately, advancements in technology are regularly changing firefighters' capabilities of bringing potentially extreme situations to ease. These first responders now dress head-to-toe in modern PPC, leaving no inch of skin open to potentially carcinogenic contact as chemicals burn and smoke billows. We follow the brigade stomping composedly into the engine room, a large warehouse with three sets of polished trucks and support vehicles. The crew jump in the trucks, which they call pumps, the large garage doors of the station roll open, and they're off to the emergency scene, sirens blaring. This is called the engine room, and we have, uh, well, it's Vincent first and Vincent second, that's how we call the, they're called appliances or pumps, and we've got the third one here, which we're now, the crews are now training on, that's brand new. So that's the, that is the latest and greatest fire truck in the fleet. And obviously the cab and in there, so that's our onboard data terminal that will give you a dispatch. And that's a, there's a job up there that now, uh, I think it's Kensington in South Perth is that. Like the cockpit of a small airplane, this truck is loaded full of gadgets, complicated features and interesting tools. With regular training, the team are kept up to date with constant changes to their kit, just as we saw them inspecting and training on the latest Vincent third pump. While they're not being called out to an incident, a station chief runs the small crew on duty through the latest devices and adaptations to equipment they'll be expecting to use over the upcoming summer. An essential piece of kit is access to clean air in dangerous situations. Mark says he's seen six versions of upgrades to personal oxygen supply in his time. Right, breathing apparatus, which is our life, you know, life support for fireys. So this protects us from smoke, you know, heat, uh, you know, hot gases to a point. It's heavier, it's more comfortable. Uh, you've got uh, various uh, uh, adjustments to make to make it comfortable. Uh, you know, we're timed to go into a fire. We're sort of timed when we go in. We've only got a certain certain amount of time that we're allowed to be in there. Continual improvements to devices as crucial as breathing apparatus is allowing firefighting to advance in new ways, making it more manageable to withstand higher temperatures for longer. Mark says many of the tools have always put out fires in the same way, like spraying water directly on a fire or using foam sprays and retardants. But new materials are making life cleaner, quicker and comfier, such as fire hoses moving away from canvas hoses to plastic hoses. 
Along with this process of continual improvement, there's also brand new items, adding capabilities that early firefighters couldn't have imagined. Mark shows me one such piece he now considers essential, a thermal imaging camera. He whips out a small radar-looking gun with a camera and a small screen smaller than your phone showing the changing temperatures of the warehouse around us. It's a thermal imaging camera that can show you the heat signal of whatever it's looking at. And it's got several different modes and it'll show you even the temperature of, of the item that I'm looking at. It can be used to scan a room for a casualty or someone in the room. Uh, it can pick up hot spots. It can tell us if the fire's escalating in temperature or de-escalating. Uh, and so it's a very, you know, it's, a, it's simple to use. It's a very quick to use and it's, uh, it, the, the firefighters have always got it with them. It just what it was technology that wasn't available, you know, in the past, and now we've got it, and uh, we couldn't do without it. This time, the crew returned from the Rain Square call-out. Good news: a false alarm, and a steady air of ease returns to the station. This isn't always the case. Each time the crew heads out to an emergency, they could be walking into a potentially life-threatening situation. Given our summers are getting hotter, and we've just experienced the hottest November week since records began. I wondered what new developments in technology might be helpful for the department to keep up with changing conditions. I've had the benefit of using a drone at a bushfire, you know, aerial, aerial reconnaissance uh, immediately, which was good. Possibly at a recent factory fire I was at, a, a drone might have been handy at night to, uh, you know, take some footage of the you know, aerial view of the situation, see what was still burning. Like any organisation, we're getting uh, more sophisticated as time goes on. We have a dedicated research and development branch and they're looking into all sorts of modern technologies. We're getting more and more uh, modern equipment uh, all the good. time. Put it out. Since learning about how our firefighters are using the latest tech on the ground and in the air, I took a trip to the DFES Research and Development Centre in O'Connor to learn more about how the latest technologies are developed and distributed to stations around West Australia. I met with DFES Research and Development Operational Coordinator Timothy Moore, and I was surprised to find out majority of their latest equipment is developed hand-in-hand with international commercial manufacturers who are eager to satisfy our industry here at home. The industry and manufacturers, they've they've come a long way, especially with the advent of communication revolution, uh, for instance, internet, uh, instant customer feedback. Manufacturers receive real-time advice from the end user and feedback from their gear. They want customer confidence. They are very proactive in making sure that they are getting information back from the end user about how their gear is working and what they can do to make it better. A lot goes into it as well. I think a lot of uh, people think R&D is just a a quick montage of of trial and error. You invent something and it's out the door. Testing, trialling, producing something new before it actually becomes a market item. So, the competition of a global commercial market fast tracks our local R&D and works alongside the personal operational needs of even our own local firefighters. Tim tells me about his own personal preference in having a boot heel pull tag and how strong feedback to the manufacturers sees WA firefighters grow global influence. Something simple, but these boots that everyone wears didn't have a pull tag. So it's a quick call back to them saying we can't get the boots on now that they're a bit smaller. 
put a pull tape on. The manufacturers are happy to do it. So they make a slight change in their, in their manufacturing of the item and suddenly everyone's happy with it. He said, can you make a boot less than a kilo? No other boot was out there that was less than a kilo. They dropped it down to be a hiking boot. They even got in partnership with a tyre company, Michelin, to get some good intellectual property or usage on how to use different types of traction, connecting rubber to the other uh, materials um, in the boot as well. This is just one example of how our own local firefighting industry influences commercial industry around the world. The rigorous testing and personal operational needs of our own firefighters at home have a lasting effect on firefighting internationally. In Perth WA, we're the most isolated city. We're a big country town, but we're we're well advanced um, in relation to how we respond to incidents and and fight bushfires. Um, We have Australian standards. A lot of those standards have actually become the new international standards. So especially in relation to wildfire garments, um, the uh, the NFPA, which is the US standards, as well as the EU standards, they've used our standards as the new international standards. So I think we should be proud that um, how we fight fighters has almost become the, 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 the standard, uh, at least for PPC, um, and how we operate. While City of Vincent fiery Mark Otto taught us how wearing PPC and utilising PPE is changing dramatically for the end user, Tim took me to the warehouse where all the latest garments are being tested to satisfy intense conditions. In one hand, he holds an original 1980s natural fibre coat used by frontline fighters, and in the other, the latest offering from the R&D centre. This, this is 100% wool. This would have been used for, I want to say, 80s and previous. It was like the first iteration of firefighters way back turn of the century. This is actually what they would use. So it's really good. We like to keep these things as, not so much legacy, but um, to remind us of how far we've actually come. This was at the time, and this is what I love, this was high-tech, high-technology, Velcro. At one point, Velcro was the newest innovation. It makes sense, right? Um, Inbuilt YKK zipping. That was, again, uh, amazing technology. Having a nice inner liner as opposed to just straight-up wool. A nice piece of uh, vintage wear for anyone who's into street style. <laughs> it is very retro. I'm sure that uh, this would be bought up. Recently old stuff. You can almost say it's a massive change, but what are we looking at? The exact same Velcro strap. Velcro strap. The inner, though, is still much more uh, lighter. In fact, that's fire retardant as well. Sweat holes. A few more pockets because, as we see, we're just we're, we're carrying more and more items than the latest version. Once again, it's a, it's a change in material, lighter, better, stronger, but it's kind of still the we're still looking at the same skeleton. You can still see back to the grandfather days. Spent, I kid you not, this was like a two-year project to research every single type of material out there and do different types. So you feel that. You feel that now, that's glide ice. It actually feels cooler. In those two years, Tim says they tested and utilised materials used by NASA and the military to create an inherently fire-resistant product. Each skin contact garment is tested to withstand a flame at more than 260 degrees with no material to melt, drip, ignite or shrink more than just 5%. 
More dramatically, he unveils a dishevelled fire helmet, burnt and scorched with melted sides and an unrecognisable Defez badge, having been through the tribulations of testing. This helmet was tested at extreme temperatures, made to survive conditions of a direct and intense flame for more than 10 seconds. Tim says even in this condition, it would have saved someone's life. That was probably put into a temperature well above the standard, but it saved the person's brain. Gave them enough time to actually get out and remain safe. Brilliant. We're looking at some uh, a helmet and some other PPC gear here that has been tried and tested in the war of safety regulations and it's burnt and is the, has the waft of smoke but it's incredible to see that a helmet can be as brutalized as that and still have saved someone's life yeah as you can see doesn't fall apart bubbles lose the decals but the person survives at the end of the day the warehouse we're standing in is adorned with technologies of a past life alongside the latest and yet to be distributed equipment of the near future Right now, we're stepping up into a polished new truck, a little different to a standard fire truck. We step up into the truck through swinging plastic butcher shop flaps and into a refrigerated truck, but it's not carrying fresh goods for delivery. Let's jump up here. So to minimise the heat stress that people, that firefighters feel, and it provides several ways to cooling people down from having an air-conditioned space that they're allowed to, that they can go in to sit down, the ability to create ice-cold drinks for them. These seats that we have, so recliner seats, have extra spaces for people to allow them to put their forearms into cool water. All mammals have a lot of uh, capillaries in their forearms. That is a way of actually keeping people cool. You might actually see kangaroos actually licking their arms to keep cool. So. If you keep your forearms cool, it'll cool your body down. With the hot summer season ahead, it's all too evident how this truck would be utilised by worn-out firefighters drenched in sweat, relaxing in a portable cool room. It was a great example of immediately beneficial technologies soon to be distributed to local stations. An exciting prospect from the R&D centre. Giant refrigerated trucks and lightweight, easy-to-pull-on boots aren't the only things the commercial market is offering to the industry. Like the rest of the modern world, the firefighting industry is also being influenced by a desire to be more eco-friendly and develop new tools with the advent of AI. In the horizon, what we're looking at is obviously EV vehicles. So the government has an initiative for zero emissions 2030. We're also assisting with becoming carbon neutral. So you know, give it a give it a decade or so, and you'll start seeing more. EV vehicles that the government is using, as well as how we respond to EV vehicles. Another project we're currently doing, which will be on the horizon, is just using robots. So the old thing about robots or drones is if it's dirty, dull or dangerous, you use a drone. We do all three. In fact, a lot of our jobs are all those three. I think robots in unison with AI will certainly be something that's going to be a game changer. So it's not kind of futuristic of having robots who think for themselves, you know, robotic firefighters, but just how we might assess information and then make intelligent uh, decision with support of AI in the way that instruments are uh, run. Talking to Tim gave me optimistic insight into the future of intense fire seasons and how our firefighters are equipped to deal with deadly and traumatising conditions. From basic woolen coats allowing open skin contact with carcinogens to glide ice moisture inner barriers and condition-specific PPC, the game has certainly changed. 
Our own local firefighting industry plays an international role in advancing rapid, more cost-effective, personalised and critical equipment for firefighting around the world. Another big surprise was the fact that the R&D team accepts firefighting ideas from the general public, which has in fact supported the development of things such as home foam reticulation retardant systems and small but important changes to PPC. Yep, anyone with a clever idea or game-changing invention can reach out and submit it to DFES for the benefit of our own fireys and maybe even the global firefighting industry. So, are you sitting on a million-dollar firefighting idea burning to be heard? While drones and AI offer some pretty epic sci-fi firefighting options, and PPC, wet layers, race car tyre boots and dual layer coats are making ground in personal protection, these technologies support one thing, fighting live fires. They're the last line of defence. But what about before a fire starts? I was curious to learn how the face of our city might be shaped by protecting us from fire danger, without us even knowing it. Our buildings and city planning are all created to give us the best opportunity to alert and stop the risk altogether before our firefighters are even needed on the scene. The DFES Built Environment Branch are responsible for reviewing safety of buildings in design before they receive a permit and inspecting the safety of completed buildings. The codes work under the 2012 Building Regulations Legislation. 135-page dense document ensuring the best chance of stopping the spread of fire and other risks in new buildings. I sat down with DFES Built Environment Planned Assessments District Officer Gavin Maund to learn more about how the building codes that shape the face of our city are created. Unfortunately, what tends to happen in the industry is that the code is very slow moving and it usually changes once we've experienced a disaster. So um, there's some recent examples that um, uh, Grenfell Apartment Towers in in the UK five years ago initiated a a review, a a national review, including um, the process and, and of how we build buildings, not just the code. In June 2017, the UK was shook by a disastrous structural fire. The Grenfell Towers fires killed 72 people after a resident's fridge caught alight and blazed through the 24-storey building, inspiring large-scale international regulation changes to building codes and safety requirements. With lives at stake, it's obvious how important codes are for fire safety, but I wondered how they might have shaped the architecture of our city. If you go down the prescriptive um, stage, you, you will end up having square boxes, minimal uh, windows, small rooms, and you can see examples of that type of building in the East Perth um, rail station where it's, a, you know, it's just this concrete block. The East Perth station, a classic design by pioneering architect of the time, Tony Brand, built in 1976. Many other examples of brutalist works exist with city icons such as the Perth Concert Hall, the Art Gallery of WA and Royal Perth Hospital designed in the same vein. Brutalism derives its name from the French word baton brut, meaning raw concrete, all sharing a heavy and imposing feel featuring dark red bricks, thick concrete columns and rigid squared off designs. Our city's style was considered groundbreaking at the time and grew renowned for the uncompromising works. With functionality at its core, this style was built with naturally fire-retardant industrial materials, lending itself to satisfying changing fire safety standards. 
While the pioneering brutalist monoliths were architectural marvels of their day, I wondered how changing regulations and building codes affected the ever-changing face of our city. Gavin says we're moving away from regimented prescriptive regulations to performance-based codes, allowing more flexibility in how buildings are designed to detect and stop fire, rather than exactly how they might look. The designers are allowed to, to meet the intent of the code and, and use performance-based. Then they can propose buildings, and through engineering and, and um, simulations and testing, they can start um, creating more beautiful buildings, buildings that people look at um, and like to look at and like to be inside. And an example is the arena that sits in um, the CBD of Perth. The 15,000-person Perth arena is nicknamed Optimus Prime, the crushed can or the spaceship for all good reasons. Its exterior is a puzzle of shapes, Tetris-angled windows and sleek white and blue triangular tiles while the interior is kept fire safe with the latest fire detection, early mitigation and risk management engineering designs, all satisfying the regulations set by the state by proving intent to meet their performance-based codes. The litigious book of building codes and DFES's built environment branch are doing their part to make our city as fire safe as possible. I asked Gavin what can be done to further advance how we control the risk of fire in the future. I think the, the better we can use and understand fire and, and how to protect from its ignition and, and spread uh, just means that there's a safer building. There's not one element that will create a, a fire-safe you know, building or, or situation. You, you need layers or redundancies in design and that's um, where, where if, you, if you sort of plan and, and really think about a, a building and who's using it and how they use it, uh, you, you do come up with, with different strategies. It's this well-rounded approach to fire mitigation in WA allowing us to move away from the prescriptive codes and regimented designs of the 90s, where brutalist buildings of cement and bricks reigned supreme, to exploring today's modern designs. Fire safety is the forefront of planning and architecture, an unseen instigator to what our city looks like and ultimately how we live our lives. It's wild to think how bare bones our approach to such extreme emergencies once was. I imagine firefighters running through a disaster with smoke-stained skin under their single layer of PPC after a poorly designed building goes up without warning. And now, finding ourselves working hand-in-hand with a huge global industry to provide the absolute pinnacle of technology to our own local fireys, influencing standards recognised around the world. Even if you've never witnessed a fire in person... The threat itself forces our city planners to design the safest possible options. Building designs, office blocks, residential architecture and public venues are all created with fire safety at the forefront, quietly shaping the face of our city and how we live here in WA. Thank you to Lawrence and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us for the final two episodes coming out soon. Next time, Cat Williams brings us a story about three different animals who are all linked to fire in some form or another. If you can't wait till next week, visit us at particle.scitech.org.au for more WA science content. The transcript and citations for today's episode can be found through a link in the show notes. This episode was hosted by Beth Maskell. Produced by Warren Strown. Our executive producers are Michelle Aitken, Diana Gittes. 
Sound design was by Michelle Aitken, Alicia Gatani. And artwork was by Gabriel Gibbier. We'd also like to thank our guest experts for this episode Mark Otto, Timothy Moore, and Gavin Mond. And a special thank you to Michael Gatt, Lisa Larson Henry, and everyone who helped make this season possible. This particle podcast was powered by SciTech.